All right, confession time for me. Over the last year and a half, I've developed a habit. It's not a bad habit, but <laughs> I wouldn't say it's a good one either. This is it. Whenever my wife leaves town, I watch cult documentaries. That's what I do. She leaves for a day or two. I start watching cult documentaries. Um, I've seen a lot more than I would like to say, and I never enjoy it. I never feel good after, but I can't take my eyes off of it. And after surveying the, the field of documentaries online over the last 18 months, you start to recognize patterns in them. You know, if you watch enough comedies, rom-coms, horror movies, you start to see the same thing playing out. Same with cults. People talk about their story. They join a group where they're looking for some kind of meaningful connection, some kind of community, some kind of liberation or empowerment or development in a transcendent connection with something bigger than themselves. There's always an original period of bliss, things are going well, and then it takes a dark turn. They start to see things in the group that are harmful, damaging, exploitative. Perhaps some members are able to leave the group. Sometimes it's really hard, other times, Members of the group don't actually recognize it for what it is until the cult has crashed and burned in and of itself. Now, I was wondering why is this so fascinating? Because obviously, watching these experiences of these groups, um, these things are evil, they're wicked, they're horrible, they're depraved, and they, they cause long-lasting damage, like you know, decades of counseling at 100 bucks a pop. This is not an easy knot to unravel in this way. But when you think of these groups, there's a real need that they put their finger on. There's a real hunger that they actually correctly identify. They're able to identify it in others, recognize the need and say, hey, come to this group and we will be able to meet it for you in this way. Ultimately though, it's not. It raises the question though of what this need is. Think about it in terms of currency. If you see a, a counterfeit $100 bill that doesn't mean that all money is counterfeit. Quite the opposite. It actually proves that there is real legitimate currency out there and this is just a cheap imitation around it. So when I, when I watch these documentaries, I see people that are hungry for community, for connection, and for purpose. I found this in my life growing up in the church. I grew up in a very small rural church in a farm town. You might know what it. it's called Stainer. The postal code is E-I-E-I-O. And it wasn't a large church. We didn't have, you know, pastors and cool jeans and smoke machines. We didn't have elaborate um, Sunday services. It was a, a congregation of very small, honest, Christians of faith, not very intellectually robust, but very powerful, very real, very hands-on. It was a serving community. People hung around for at least half an hour after the service. You wouldn't stand up and leave. You would sit and you would turn and talk to your neighbor for at least half an hour. It was, it was a whole other service. You'd stay for a whole other chunk of the afternoon after that. If you left early, you would get two things. You would get a casserole and you would get a phone call. Someone would call you and say, hey, I saw, I saw you, you snuck out of the service quick. Is everything okay? Is there something going on? Is there something we can help you with? And even if you say no, you're still getting a casserole at your house. I knew, I knew a couple, George and Muriel, in their, they, in their garage, they had a whole separate chest freezer filled with meals that they could just give to people at the drop of a hat. Praise God. And there were moments where it felt like this small, real community was actually 
the hands and feet of Jesus. Felt like there was supernatural things happening in this church and in the community around for them. And yet, there were moments where it also felt just very human in the worst ways possible. I saw a lot of mistreatment. I saw a lot of backstabbing. I saw a lot of gossip. I saw a lot of insecure, prideful people looking to exalt themselves. And I saw a lot of good people get chewed up and spit out. I know people that have wounds that will be with them for the rest of their life because of the things that they've experienced through the pain of church. For every good story I have, I could probably give you 10 examples of pain that has happened in other ways. Wounds that have been done, communities that have been broken by the church. There's so many painful examples of when churches sway from their foundation and their calling. How many friends do I have right now that would say, yeah, I love Jesus, but I need a little bit of a break from the church? Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're feeling that same, that same pain, that same distance. Perhaps you're coming back for the first time in a while. It takes a lot of courage. I really commend that. It was interesting, Pastor Terry told me this week when he was uh, pastoring at a church in London, they did a survey of, of the city, very large survey, and they asked people, why, why do you not come to church? What are your reasons? In a very open way. And the number one reason above all the others, all the responses they received was that, well, I've been hurt by the church. Why would I come to it? Why would I come back to it? You can see this dialectic even taking place online in comment sections. Someone will say, look at the harm caused by the church. But then someone will jump in and say, oh, that, that wasn't really what the church is. That wasn't authentic, real Christian community. And it just raises this question of what really constitutes a real, authentic, properly functioning church and what does not. What's the objective? What's the North Star? What's the point? And how do you even measure success or not? So today, we're kind of looking at this question. When it comes to Christian community, firstly, what is it? What is its power and what does it require? What is the church and what is, what is the, the power source of it, the empowerment? And what does it require to actually serve the objective and take hold of this empowerment that we have received. We're looking at this question today. So I would invite with you to I would invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 as we try and study this topic of what Christian community really is. And if you are a Christian, this is very helpful to know as you learn to navigate life in Christian community. If you're following a north star, you can kind of move around detours and divisions. If you have been hurt in your past by Christian community and you're working through those wounds and as you work through them and seek healing and restoration and wholeness, this is also still important if you seek to re-enter Christian community. It might actually help you process, okay, what is real Christian community and what was just broken people spreading their brokenness? And if you're not a Christian watching this today, welcome, by the way, my name's Sawyer. This is important for you if you're seeking to kind of decide if a Christian community is something that you would like to join or not. You have many demands on your time. There's infinite things you could be pouring into. Why is this something that you would want to join? I'm sure you see on the news every three or four months, a current scandal or news of things that were just learned about past scandals. Why would you come here? Why would you bring your kids here? Why is this something that you would want to join and devote yourself to as well? So let's start answering this question of firstly, what is Christian community? We can start with the basics. Humans, by our own nature, we are communal and we are relational. 
that's not very insightful. If you, if you uh, ever drive by a high school, if you remember your time in high school, you can see that people begin to cluster up according to their different interests, activities, hobbies, personalities. You'll see all the, the athletes, you'll get the hockey kids, the football kids, they come up over here. A lot of the band music kids link up over here. You'll see the drama theater kids or the goth emos or the, the skater kids. In the cafeteria, you see people cluster up in different ways and sitting alone in the cafeteria is never seen as a good thing. It's not a desirable state to be in, but why? because humans in our nature are relational and communal. But why? Because God is relational and communal. I kind of talked about this last month opening up the marriage sermon, but the Christian faith holds to the doctrine of the Trinity. That is, that God is one being and three persons. He is the Father, He is the Son, and He is the Holy Spirit. They all constitute the Godhead, yet they are distinct persons who form the Godhead. So we talk about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And these three persons of the Godhead have existed for all eternity in perfect relationship, in perfect communion, and in perfect harmony together. And in Genesis, God says, let us make man in our image. He made lions, he made tigers, he made bears and giraffes and puffins. Those do not bear the image of God, but he made man and woman. And he said, let us make man in our image. And so there's many implications of that. For example, God is a creator. He is creative. And so we, in his image, we are also creative. Tolkien would say we sub-create in God's image. So that's why we can write stories about puppy dogs, but puppy dogs do not write stories about us. But also, God is relational. He is communal. And because we bear his image, we also want to be communal. In this way, we can't help but form community because it's part of our nature. You see in the garden that humanity is in perfect relation with one another and also in perfect relation with God. Adam and Eve are described as being naked and unashamed. And you can think of that literally as physically naked. Okay, of course. But there is a vulnerability and an openness, there is no pretense, there is no projected image. There is a nature of communion that God desires for us to have with one another and we desire to have for one another in this way. At the most basic level then, we can understand a community is a group of people who share a common unity. This common factor, it might be geographical, it might be interests, it might be skills, hobbies, traits in this way. The original word used to describe the church in the Bible is ekklesia. It's a Greek word. It's kind of where we derive the term ecclesial. It means church in many different ways. But ekklesia, it just refers to a gathering of people who share a common identity or purpose. That's it. It's very broad. So people going downtown to watch a Raptors game, all wearing the jerseys, that is an ecclesia. Or gathering for a concert, that is an ecclesia. Or people gathering for a bowling league or poker night or union representatives gathering to vote. These are all ecclesias in this way. And a church was originally described as this, a gathering of people sharing a common vision or identity. Later, In the year 313 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine, we won't get too much into this, but made some shifts that institutionalized Christianity a lot more formally. You could see it calcified, crystallized, and a different term came along to also refer to this 
perhaps more institutional understanding of Christianity, and it's this German term, Kirche. I hate saying that word. That's the German term, Kirche. If it's easier, you could say Kirche or Kisch. But this term was substituted for Ecclesia. Kirche and Ecclesia refer to two very different ideas. A Kirche is a building with walls and doors, while an Ecclesia is a purposeful gathering and movement of people. You can lock the doors of a Kirche, but you cannot lock the doors of an Ecclesia. And these two, these two distinct ideas of the church as a people and the church as a building, you can see them interwoven and they actually lead to a lot of confusion, even in how we talk about the church. You see a lot of equivocation of this. Equivocation just means one word used in two different ways. So someone will say, hey, the church should really help meet the needs of some of the people on the street where I live. And what they're referring to is, hey, this building should form a committee to delegate representatives and allocate funds of paid staff to go and meet the needs of these particular people who live in my community. That's understanding the church as a building, but if you understand the church as a people, then anyone can go and meet that need. If a Christian recognizes a need in a place where God has placed them, then you would say, okay, I'm gonna go meet that need in this way. Or you can also see it uh, when someone says, the church doesn't really talk about this. The church doesn't talk about financial planning or miscarriages or gender identity or fashion or Shakespeare's influence upon Tupac. And what they mean is in the physical building where I go, this isn't explicitly and formally discussed from the pulpit. That's what that means, even though the ecclesia of the church may have vast resources on this. Some of these topics may have been mulled over for centuries in this way, okay? That's, um, I digress. But slowly and subtly, you can see how we start to make this shift from understanding the church as a people to the church as a place. So the early church, funny enough, probably looked more like our life groups than they do our Sunday services. Getting back to this main question, what separates this ecclesia of the church of Jesus from others. And the first thing that we see when we look at the Bible is that the community of the church shares the feature that we have the same Savior. If you're in Ephesians 2, let's start reading the first 10 verses, 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. 
I could, I could end right on that. But there's a lot of churchy language in here. And if you're kind of new to all this, let me break it down for you a little bit. Paul is saying in this letter that he's writing to the church in Ephesus, that's why it's called Ephesians, that they are all marked by the same Savior. All of humanity, he's, he paints this broad picture, is in a dire need of redemption, of being fixed. Something has gone terribly wrong. There's a natural way that things go, a predisposition that humans have that leads towards the same wrong things. Stealing, lying, envy, murder, greed, bitterness, resentment, jealousy, anger, manipulation. We do the wrong thing and it's easy. Many times we like it. Parents, consider this. Did you have to teach your child how to do the wrong thing? Did you have to teach them to lie or get mad or throw tantrums? Little Timmy gets upset, picks up a train, poof, clubs his friend. Ah, who taught him that? No one asks that. They're like, yeah, okay, that's what kids do. They're just monsters in a smaller size. I love your kids, but it's true. <laughs> we should have a live feed of the kidsmen right now. But Paul says that we are in this terrifying reality that we seem to want to do the wrong things and we don't want to do the right things. And we get this terrifying reality of actually sometimes getting what we want. I want to be my own master and commander. I want to be the king of my universe. I want to set up my own Sawyer-sized throne in here. I want everyone and everything in here to serve me and my good wishes to forward my purposes and magnify my name. Now, we would never say that. But if we look at our track record, that's kind of tend, how we tend to operate. If we could put the last seven days of my life, of your life on the screen, if we could put the inner workings of our mind on the screen, just the last seven days, there's not anyone watching that wouldn't be terribly ashamed. We have naturally and rightfully incurred penalties. Wrath is the word that we use because of this, because we're broken and all we do is spread our brokenness. I'm broken and this, um, this affects my relationship with others, this affects my relationship with myself, and ultimately this affects my relationship with God. It's easy to recognize the things out there that need to be fixed, but it's just as true that there are things in here that needs to be fixed. Paul paints this, this picture. It's dismal, but it's not inaccurate. But then the glorious truth of the gospel comes in and Paul says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So Jesus comes. That's the beauty of Christmas. And he lives the life that we could not live. He pays the price that we could not pay. He becomes for us what we could not become for ourselves so that we can be put back in right standing with God. That's what we celebrate at Easter. So the Christian is not the person, um, pardon me, the Christian is the person who says, I can't do this on my own. I can't do it by myself. I can't be a good enough person. I can't clean myself up enough. I can't scrub out the stains of my sins. I can't be good enough, but I have put my faith in Jesus. I trust in him. I trust in his power. I trust in his resurrection. I trust in his perfection, that he is the only one who can get me through this and set me free in this way. I'm not saved by a guru. I'm not saved by a self-help book. I'm not saved by the power of positive thinking or good vibes or manifesting the best version of myself. It is Christ and Christ alone. We all have the same Savior, those who claim the name of Christ. 
And because of this, this brings us to our, our second distinguishing feature of Christian community. Not only do we have the same Savior, but we have the same story. You'll see this. It kind of is counterintuitive. But let's keep reading in Ephesians 2. We're going to read the rest of the chapter. Today is Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 20. Therefore, as Paul is saying, given all this, here are the implications. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, he's referring to people who are not ethnically Jewish, not the Hebrew people. You Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, Jew and Gentile, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So, then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There's a lot there. This is the, the transition from the gospel to the church. Again, in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul is talking to different people groups that have historical tensions. Race relations, they weren't, weren't going too well. Track record wasn't too hot between Jews and Gentiles, Hebrews, Greeks, and the midst. A lot of bad blood, a lot of nasty history, and lingering animosity. And Paul says, guess what? No matter what may have happened, what may have played out, whatever baggage and grievances we're bringing to this, he says, now... If you are in Christ, you all have the same story. That might sound weird. Hey man, you don't know me, you don't know my past, you don't know what I've experienced and I've been through. But if you are in Christ, I can say that I do. How do I say that? Consider the following. There might be two broad poles, two dichotomies, if you think of it as a spectrum, of growing up um, before Christ. You can consider the first over here on the far side. Perhaps you grew up in a household where faith was nurtured and you were encouraged to consider Jesus, to love him, to follow him with your life. The Bible was perhaps the center of your home and by the grace of God, early in your life, you made some type of profession of faith. Your heart was awakened to this. And so the story of your life is that, hey, um, I don't uh, listen to bad music. I don't um, drink, I don't swear, except when I'm driving alone in the car and I feel really bad after, or I don't watch R-rated movies except for the passion. I towed the line. I kept it on the straight and narrow in this way. But some of you were perhaps coming from the opposite end. Some of you were born into darkness and things only got darker. Things were wild, 
dark and scary where you grew up, where you came from, and you tried to comfort yourself with things wherever you would find it. You gave yourself over to temporary pleasures. You tried to self-medicate the hurt and fear, and you've battled a lot of shame and regret beforehand. And you've now come to Christ and you've looked at your past and all the things that are from it. All of us find ourselves somewhere in this realm. Psalm 51.5 says, I was brought forth in iniquity. But the truth is this, for the person who comes from the godly household or the person who comes from a background of darkness on a deep level, the story is the same. Two people, different ends of the, the sociological spectrum, both need Jesus and both found grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ. One person wasn't farther ahead than the other. All are undeserving. A great way of putting it is the ground, the foot of the cross is level. There's not some that, oh, a little bit less work here, a little bit more work here for Jesus. He said, all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's how Paul puts it. And we all have the same story, that I was lost and now I'm found, that I was blind and now I see in this way. And so Paul, when talking about these two different groups of people with nasty historical and present tensions, he makes this radical claim that the wall that used to exist between these two people has now been broken down. That because all people, whether near or far, that's temple language. There were different courts, okay? If you were from this people group, if you were of this, uh, these certain traits and traits and factors, then you could come closer. But if you were like this, you had, to, you had to worship from farther away. And he says, those who were way, way, way back there and those who were up close have both been brought near. The wall of hostility has been broken down because of the blood of Christ. We can't get too deep into this. But Paul says that what Christ has accomplished in reconciling us with God has also reconciled us to one another, Jew and Gentile. English and Nigerian and Chinese and Filipino and man and woman and rich and poor and educated and uneducated. My primary identity now is that I am in Christ. I am a white Canadian male of Scottish ancestry, but that's not the primary factor of my identity. When I meet a 90-year-old Iraqi national who claims the name of Christ, I now have more in common with her than I do when I meet another white Canadian guy in Southern Ontario in this way. A couple years ago, actually, back when I lived with um, a bunch of friends in an apartment before marriage, I was in the elevator talking with this older Egyptian woman and she found out I went to Tyndale and she said, oh, you're a Christian. Come on into my apartment. We're gonna read the Bible together. She said, come, we will speak biblically. And so I came in, she gave me some baklava. She said, take the baklava. And she gave me the Bible and we sat and talked about Jesus for an hour. Boom, in the elevator, Oh, you're part of the Ecclesia of Christ? That's my brother. That's my sister. The baklava didn't hurt either, but she brought me in. What, what else? Let's get real here. What else would unify such a disparate group of people? Our history books are soaked with the blood of conflict. In-group fighting, group-to-group -group fighting, it seems like our default is strife. Even today, I don't think we're that much different. Social media kind of creates this illusion that we're, we're well-connected, but it's really a very thin connection and very, very deep divides. Praise God, legally, there's a lot more equality in, in ways, but I don't know if, if there's less hatred in the human heart. I don't know if we're less racist. We just know what words not to use. The power to change the human heart does not come within. 
But for those of you in Christ, you can be from Timmins or Timbuktu or Trinidad and Tobago. And I say, that is my brother and that is my sister because we share the adopted status of God's children in the family of faith. And now that we are in the family of faith, we have the same Savior, we have the same story, and now we get to the third component of Christian community, which is this, that we share the same calling. I'm going to jump to 2 Corinthians 5, starting in 16. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We just talked about that. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the key verse. I'm going to read that again. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for God. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled for God. This is one of my favorite verses. For our sake, he made him, God made Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the story of the gospel. God says that I'm sending my son, I've sent my son Jesus, not because of how great you are, but for the glory of my name, and he will reconcile all things back to himself, us included. And then when we are reconciled back to God, it's not just so we can hang out and be homies. We have fellowship, that's great, but it's not just a, a social group and we stick Jesus on us as a name tag. But he says, guess what? You get to join in this ministry of reconciling all things back to God, that we're fractured in all of our relationships. We saw early in the garden that we had this beautiful communion, this relationship, this wholeness, this deepness, this, this vulnerability, and it's been shattered. And we've been put back in right standing with God, and now we get to share this great gift that we have. This is our mission. We have the same Savior, we have the same story, and now we share the same, what did I say? We have the same Savior, same story, and now we share the same mission the same task, that we are co-laborers in Christ, working together for the glory of his name. The Great Commission is go forth and make disciples of all nations. So far we've looked at, okay, what is Christian community? What separates it from other, other communities, other ecclesias, a bowling club, a knitting club, other religions? And we say this, that we are a community of faith marked at least by three things, that we have the same story. Uh, I'm, Look at me, I'm getting them out of order. The same Savior, the same story, and we have the same task, the same mission. Now that was our first question, what is it? The other two questions, what is the power of the church and how is it maintained? I'm just gonna give you a little taste because this is actually something that needs to be walked and not just explained. But in 1 Corinthians 12, I don't even think I'm gonna read it, Paul uses the imagery of the body. He describes the church as a physical body with many members that have been put together with Christ as the head, empowered by the Spirit to go and do this mission. So you can read this, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 18. But we see these two things. What is our power? We're given God's Spirit and we're given each other. And how is this maintained? How is this used? Both require 
communion. Not just knowledge. I can know a lot about somebody without knowing them, but communion takes time and it takes vulnerability. It takes intentional effort in this way. When I'm making time every day to align my heart with God's, Lord, what is your desire for me in this day? How would you use me, my time, my talent, and my treasure? And I gather with other believers and we encourage each other. We build each other up. And that's risky stuff. That's vulnerable, especially if you did open up your heart and people took advantage of that in a church setting. It's very hard for guys. As soon as there's any kind of um, emotion, any kind of heart to heart, if something feels squishy or emotional, guys are going to pull away. They're going to crack a joke. Someone says, hey, I'm, I'm feeling just a bit confused and scared and inadequate. I don't know what to do. They'll go, ah, yeah, that's what your mom said. But especially for guys, men and women, women are just better at this, many things. Let me encourage you to make that step towards deeper communion, not only with the Father, but with the church. And that doesn't mean you go to your life group and say, 20 years ago, I murdered someone at a bar in Florida. That's not what I'm saying doesn't even have to be your whole life group. We can exist in community, but is there one or two people in your life? And guess what? Maybe you can open up a little bit. You share a little bit here. See what they do with it. See how they handle it. Do they pull away or do they lean in? Are they scared away by it? Or do they say, guess what? God's grace is sufficient for that. Do you have believers in your life who you can serve, who can serve you, as you can sharpen each other and grow and serve for the common calling that we have? We've been given God's spirit we've been given each other. And there's not time to get into this today. But as we study this great truth that is Christian community, where is this kind of leaning on you? Where is it challenging your understanding? Where can you be convicted to lean in more deeply in God's community, in communion with others and in communion with His Spirit in this way? Where has God gifted you? Where are places around you that you can serve? And where are your weaknesses that other people can help supplement you and serve you in this way, as we look at the beautiful truth that we have the same Savior, that we have the same story, and we have the same task. Now, church, let's continue in worship.